Before we, or as we jump into our time today, I want to draw your attention back to verse 7, where Peter makes this statement, but the end of all things is at hand. Now, what's interesting about that is Peter wrote those words in A.D. 64. And that can seem a bit odd to us when we realize that 1,957 years have passed since the writing of those words. So what did Peter mean when he said, the end of all things is at hand? But here's another thing that's kind of odd when we read these words, is remember that this wasn't just Peter writing this, but the Holy Spirit actually inspired Peter to write these words. In giving this declaration 1,957 years ago that the end of all things is at hand. What what would the Holy Spirit mean by that? And then we also remember that the Holy Spirit inspired both the Apostle John and the Apostle Paul to write about the soon return of Jesus Christ over 1,900 years ago. And I'm prompted to ask the question, why would the Holy Spirit do that? Why would he have these men write so long ago, writing about and declaring to the church at that particular time that, hey, Jesus is coming soon. The end of all things is at hand. Is the Holy Spirit being sort of like the little boy that cried wolf? You know that story? Little boy going, he's like, you know, saying to the town, hey, I saw a wolf. There's a wolf coming. And, and, you know, the people get all worked up and, but there wasn't any wolf. He does this over and over again until finally people just quit ignoring this little boy who was crying wolf. And then the wolf comes and took advantage of the people. So is that what the Holy Spirit's doing? No. But you know, a lot of people have felt that way. In fact, sometimes in, in Calvary Chapel, we've been accused, you, know, you guys are always talking about prophecy and always talking about you know, the last days and, and it hasn't happened yet. And people have, have struggled with that. They've said, you know, the early church, they've been talking about the coming of Jesus Christ for 2,000 years, and it hasn't happened. Well, I want to address those questions today before we dive into our text. And here's, first of all, what we need to understand when we talk about these type of things is that God's timetable is different from ours. In fact, I want you to keep your place here and turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter addresses this very thing. Because in 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter's writing to point out how the church in his day was also wrestling with this delay in the Lord's coming. Notice verse 4, Peter says, and some are saying, where is the promise of his coming? People are saying that. Even today, they were saying that back then. He says, for since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning. People saying, look, nothing has changed from the beginning of creation. But Peter says, for this they willfully forget that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished being flooded by the water. Here's what Peter's saying. Look, they need to understand and they forget that God spoke this world into existence. And God spoke and this world that he spoke into existence was destroyed by a flood. That's how powerful God's word is. But then he says this, verse 7, But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, the God who spoke the world into existence, is preserving the world right now by that same word, his same powerful word. But Peter says that are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and the perdition of ungodly men. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. 
day. So here's the issue. God's timetable is different from ours. We sit there and look from the time of the birth of Christ and the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ and the soon return of Christ, 2,000 years or almost 2,000 years have passed by and we think, Lord, what, what's happening? And when are you coming? And God says, yeah, in your eyes it's 2,000 years, but in my estimation it's, it's barely been two days. And that really magnifies the incredible patience of God and the long-suffering of God, which is exactly what Peter continues to say. Look at verse 9 there in 2 Peter 3. He says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Here's what Peter's telling us. The Lord delays his coming because he doesn't want anybody to perish. He doesn't want anybody to miss out on this. So he's waiting for that one last person to give their life to Jesus. And I don't know, maybe you're that person here today. You're the one holding this all up. Can I just beg you, give your life to Jesus today, all right? (laughs) But here's another thing that we need to understand. A second reason why the Holy Spirit would inspire the apostles to write over 2,000 years ago that Jesus is coming soon, is that he wants his church, his, the followers of Jesus, in every generation, in every century, to always be ready and watching for the coming of Christ because he knows that we are the most impactful For Jesus, when we truly believe that he could come back at any time. And so he is, from the very beginning, wanted the followers of Jesus to always be living with that belief in the soon, the imminent return of Jesus Christ. But here's something we also need to understand about the phrase, the last days. The last days is technically a phrase in the New Testament that refers to to the time between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. That time frame from from Jesus' birth to his second coming make up a time period theologically that we would call the last days. You see, prior to the first coming of Christ, Jesus being born as a baby there in Bethlehem, all of human history was moving toward that event waiting for this baby that was going to be born, that would fulfill the prophecy in Genesis chapter 3, where God spoke to the serpent and said that there is one coming who will be born of a virgin, a baby who will be born, who will become a man, and he's going to crush your head. But you're going to bruise his heel. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus, born of a virgin, comes on the scene, born in Bethlehem, grows to become a man, And at the cross, he was bruised for our transgressions, our sins, Isaiah tells us. But on the cross, Jesus defeated sin and the power of Satan and the power of death. And one day, Jesus is going to come back and he is going to literally crush the head of Satan. So according to biblical theology, we have been living in the last days since the first coming of Jesus Christ. But here's the big question that people wonder about today. Are we living in the last of the last days? Are the days that we are living in, are they putting us closer to the coming of Jesus Christ than we have 
ever been before? And the answer to that question is absolutely. And there's a lot of things that we could point to. We could point to the fact of the miracle rebirth of the nation of Israel in 1948. That this group of people that had ceased to exist for such a long time suddenly is rebirthed as a nation. We could point to that. We could point to the fact that all of the prophecies that have needed to be fulfilled for Jesus to return have been fulfilled. There's no other prophecy that we are waiting on in order to be fulfilled. So if this was a sporting event, we could say right now that we are living in a time period that we could call overtime. That's what we're in right now. We're in, we're in you know, the second or third overtime. So those are things that we could talk about, but most of you know about that. But I want, I want to point to four things, four recent things, or things that we see that have happened maybe even in the last year that point to the fact that we are definitely living in the last of the last days. The first is this, the current battle that is going on between Israel and Hamas. Now you say, why is that significant? Well, the battle in and of itself really isn't significant because those type of skirmishes have been going on between those groups forever. Although this one definitely has been more radical and the destruction and the death toll has been greater than in recent memory. But here's why this is significant. Last week, a league of 57 Muslim nations came together to demand that Israel stop firing their missiles at the Palestinians there in Gaza. They didn't say anything to the Palestinians. They didn't say anything to Hamas about firing, you know, to cease firing their 3,900 missiles that they've tried to fire into Israel. But Israel, who's, you know, fired maybe 200, very pointed though, they're great shots. They've called for a ceasefire. 57 Muslim nations. And the prime minister, the foreign minister of Afghan said this, the plight of the Palestinian people is the bleeding wound of the Islamic world today. And you see, here's what these 57 Islamic leaders all agree upon. Is that there will be no rest in the Middle East until... Jerusalem is the capital city of Palestine. That's what they are wanting. That's the focal point. That's what this whole uproar started over a, a something that happened there in Jerusalem. And this is the thing that they all agree upon. But here's the problem. Israel is never, ever going to agree to that. So why is that significant? Well, Speaking of what would happen in the last days, God spoke through the prophet Zechariah in Zechariah chapter 12 and said this, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that sends all the surrounding peoples reeling. Judah will be besieged as well as Jerusalem. And on that day, when all the nations of the earth are gathered against her, I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock for all the nations. So God said in the last days, this is going to be the issue, is that Jerusalem is going to be the, the troubling spot. It's going to be the rock. It's going to be the thing that people are, are stumbling over. Now, here's what's significant about that. Jerusalem is a city there in Israel that is 48 square miles in its distance. Now, just to put that in perspective, the city of San Diego is 374 square miles. That's how small Israel is, okay? Or put it this way, Oceanside is 43 square miles. 
So the, the uproar in all the Middle East, and, and it's not just these 57 Islamic Muslim countries that are coming against Israel, but, but there's a whole bunch of other countries around the world that, that look at Israel and are angry at Israel, and it all has to do with Jerusalem and who owns Jerusalem. The Arabs already control the Temple Mount, but they want to control the whole city, and Israel is not going to let that happened. So we could say Zechariah chapter 12 verse 2 is really happening, becoming true right before our very eyes. Here's another reason. The book of Revelation says that in the last days, the entire world is going to come together under a one world leader. Globalism to the max. Now, I know a lot of us, we, we would look at that in the past and think that just seems impossible because we look at, you know, the egos of all these world leaders and all the different ideologies and the, the idea that all the nations of the world could come together under one leader just seemed preposterous until COVID happened. And then suddenly, because of COVID, we saw all the nations in the entire world working in unison to try to stop the spreading of the virus. And so all the countries all over the world went on lockdown. And some of you are saying, please, Rob, don't remind us of that. (laughs) We're almost out, you know. But but that's what happened. All the nations coming together as as one. And and that had nothing like that had ever happened before. Now, picture this, okay? They say right now there's approximately 8 billion people living on planet Earth. And they also say that approximately 2 billion of those people profess to be followers of Jesus Christ or to be Christian. They name Christian as the religion. Now, I think that number is way too high. I don't think there are 2 billion people following Jesus wholeheartedly living on planet Earth. The world would be a lot different if that was the case. So let's just take that number and say it's 1 billion. The next event on the prophetic calendar, the thing that we are waiting for, is what the Bible refers to as the rapture of the church. It's when Jesus is going to come, not to this earth, but to the clouds. The trumpet is going to blast, and all believers in Jesus Christ all over the world, in countries all over the planet, those one billion people are suddenly going to vanish Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that it's going to be like, you know, in the twinkling of an eye, now you see me, now you don't. You blink, and all of a sudden they're gone, and we're going to be with the Lord in heaven as his bride for seven years. That's what, that's what all of us are hoping for, right? We're like, like they want that to, to happen. Now, I want you to think about this, okay? What do you think the world is going to be like when that takes place? A billion people suddenly in countries all over the world, millions of people in different countries suddenly just gone. It's going to send the world reeling. It is going to be mass chaos. And the Bible in the book of Revelation tells us that during that time, a world leader is going to come on the scene that's going to pull everybody together, who's going to say, hey, I've got the answer for the chaos. Now, prior to 2020, (laughs) that that seemed hard to believe, but now it seems like, oh, I could see, I could see that. I could see how how everybody could come together in the midst of all the chaos and what's going on, because we saw That happened in this pandemic. Let me give you another reason. In the book of Revelation, it also predicts in the last days that we will move into a cashless society where the only way that people are going to be able to buy or sell is to have some type of an identification mark 
on their body, some type of computer chip probably, underneath the skin that has all of their you know, records and all of their banking records and, and that type of thing. And again, that seemed really far-fetched, but you know what? We have that technology today to do all of that. And on top of that, in so many of the technology sites, including this site, Government Technology, they're saying this, the pandemic is accelerating the world in the direction of a cashless society. Because people don't want to have contact with one another. They know that money is filthy, it's dirty, full of germs. And so people are like, let's just do away with money. And so we are moving in this direction rapidly right now toward a cashless society. Let me give you one more. A recent survey that was done said this, 43% of millennials don't know, don't care, and don't believe that God exists. And why is that significant? Well, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul said this, but mark this, There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. And here we see 43% of millennials are saying that they don't believe in the existence of God. This is why that is so significant. If there is no God, then that means there's no one to listen to. There's no one to answer to. If there is no God, then there's really no morals. There's no re- morality. We can just pick and choose. You know, I can sleep with who I want to. I can do what I want to. I can ingest what I want to. If there is no God, then that means that I have not been created in his image. And so that means I am free to forge my own destiny, to determine who I want to be or what I want to be and what gender I want to be. And guys, we are living in those times right now that 2 Timothy chapter 3 is describing. Let me give you another example about that. This happened, I read about this this past week, about a father in Canada who was arrested. He was arrested because he violated a court order banning him from speaking out about his biological daughter's gender transition. Here's what happened. His 13-year-old daughter was exposed to pro-transgender educational materials in public school. She started to think that she was really meant to be a boy. So she talked to a guidance counselor who encouraged her in her desire to transition. Her school allowed her to change her name to a boy's name. All the teachers were instructed to start calling her by this boy's name. School officials received input from a psychologist who encouraged the young girl to start taking testosterone. All of this was done without her parents' knowledge behind her parents' back. She was referred to an endocrinologist at a nearby hospital, all without her parents' knowledge. And this whole process was starting, and her father found out when looking at her seventh grade yearbook, and he saw that her name was a boy's name, and he thought, what's going on? So he questioned it. He went to the school and he protested. They filed a court order against him. He spoke out in public against that and he was arrested. 
Paul said that we would be living in terrible times in the last days. Guys, we are living in those times. Our world is out of control. So here's the question. How are we to be living? That's what I want to focus on today. Turn back to 1 Peter 4. And today we're going to look at verses 1 through 6 and see four things that Paul lays out for us. And then next week we're going to come back and focus on verses 7 through 11 and get some more insight about how we should be living in these last days. But we're called as those living in the last days to redeem the time. So how do we do that? First of all, number one, we need to resist sin. Look at verse 1 again. He says, therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh... Arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That little phrase, arm yourself, is a military phrase that speaks of being prepared. It's the picture, if you will, of a soldier putting on his gear and getting ready to go into battle. That's the idea behind this phrase, arm yourself. So what Peter's saying here is you and I, as followers of Christ, we can't live with a peacetime mentality. We can't live like there's peace. We need to realize that we are in a battle, that we are in a war, that we can't be lackadaisical, that we can't you know, just kind of chill out. We need to understand the times that we are living in. So the very call to be armed is a reminder that danger still exists. That's the result of living in this fallen world that's been plagued by sin. But you know what? I think sometimes we forget. We take the doctrine of the fall. We don't take it as seriously as we should. And I think sometimes it's easy for us to get for, forget just how tragically our world and people in our world have been broken by sin. And so we don't take seriously the presence and the power of remaining sin. And because of that, we sort of live naively as it relates to temptation. We don't think it's as dangerous as it really is. We live naively as it relates to the seduction of sin, and we play around with it, and we think that it's not going to be a big deal, and that that it's going to be okay, and we end up falling into these areas of temptation. Because we're just naively going through life and forgetting and to realize the sin that has infected our world and people in our world in our own lives. I see this oftentimes when I'm counseling um, people in premarital counseling, especially young couples that are getting married. Because part of premarital counseling is to try to get people ready for what they're going to experience. And a lot of times what people forget when they're premarital counseling is that they are marrying a sinner right? They forget that. How many of you know you married a sinner? Okay. Turn towards your spouse right now and say, I married a sinner. All right. Just remind them of that. But here's oftentimes what happens is I'm trying to let them know that, hey, selfishness, this is what's going to happen. Selfishness is going to rear its ugly head in your marriage relationship. And they look at me with this big smile on their face like that's not going to happen to us. We're so in love. You know, that's not going to happen. And then two months later, they're calling, Pastor Rob. You're right. It's, this is crazy. Help us, you know, type of thing. So Peter's saying, hey, we need to arm ourselves. Go this way. Get your head in the game. Realize what's at stake. Get mentally prepared for the fight that you're about to get into. How do we get mentally prepared? He tells us to arm ourselves with the same mind as Jesus. 
So we're to have the same mindset that Jesus had towards sin and suffering. What was Jesus' mindset? Well, here's the first thing that we need to, to realize as we're thinking about that. We need to understand and realize that it was our sin that put Jesus on the cross. When I look at the cross, it reminds me, my sin put my Savior there. But do you realize that Jesus had a very militant attitude towards sin and suffering? That's why it tells us in the Bible, in Luke's Gospel, that he steadfastly was moving toward Jerusalem. That he put his face like a rock, that he would be unmoved as he was heading towards Jerusalem, knowing full well that what was going to happen there was he was going to suffer and die for the sins of the world. But Jesus moved throughout his life in that direction like a soldier heading into battle, knowing full well what was at stake. And Peter says that we're to arm ourselves with the same mindset that Jesus had towards sin. We need to understand that sin needs to be destroyed. Now, what does Peter mean, though, when he says this? For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Is Peter suggesting that our suffering for Jesus somehow magically produces holiness in us? No, we know that isn't the case, right? You've experienced that this this past week. You you suffered a little bit, and and the result of it, the reaction was anything but holiness, right? (laughs) You got in the flesh. The flesh is what what came out. So that's not what he's saying. What he's suggesting here, what he's referring to, is what often happens in a Christian's life when they decide to resist sin. When they come to the place and they're following of Jesus, and they say, you know what? I want to be done with this stuff that I used to be a part of. Peter says, no, suffering's a part of that. That's what happens. Because people are not going to understand you. They're going to come against you. They're going to persecute you and ridicule you because you have this desire to cease from sin. That's his point that he's making. It's sort of a cause and effect type of a thing. Which leads us to our second point. Not only are we to resist sin, but we are to renounce the past because we realize that, hey, I need to be done with that old life because that old life is who I used to be. In fact, look at verse 3. He says, For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness and lust and drunkenness and revelries and drinking parties and abominable idolatries. And there's a spiritual principle that we need to understand in this. Is that new birth, and that's what happened to us when we gave our life to Christ. The Bible says we were born again. Born again spiritually. New birth is supposed to result in new behavior. And I want you to notice the phrase that Peter uses here. He says, we have spent enough of our past lifetime. Everybody say enough. We spent enough of our past lifetime in these things. So as it relates to sexual immorality, that used to be the thing that we were running after, we need to say enough. Enough of that. As it relates to drunkenness that we engaged in, we need to say enough. That's who I used to be. That's not who I am now in Christ. As it relates to lewdness and cheating and immorality and parting and all that stuff that we used to give ourselves to, we need to say enough with that. I'm done with that. I'm a new person, a new creation in Christ. But I also want you to notice that Peter ties all of that kind of behavior to 
abominable, he calls it, idolatries. And the reason for that is this. All of that type of behavior is about the worship of self, the idol of self. I'm all about seeking to live to please myself, to please my flesh. But here is what I I think most of us here have understood. If you haven't, I pray that you get this today. The self can never, ever be satisfied, right? It's always hungering and thirsting for more. And so you'll never, ever be satisfied trying to worship at the idol of self because you have been made to live in a relationship with God and to worship God and Him alone. And only in that relationship, in that pursuit, is where true satisfaction happens. So how do we live in these last days? We resist sin by arming ourselves. With the same mind as Jesus, being militant towards sin. We renounce the past and realizing that I'm going to be, seek to be done with sin and, because that's who I used to be in my flesh. I'm going to be done with running after that. And here's the third thing, that we now are to be running toward the will of God. That's our focus now. Look at verse 2 again. He says, that he no longer should live the rest of his life in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. And Peter's presenting a contrast here. This is how you used to run, to please your flesh, for the things of the flesh, but they wouldn't satisfy. So now, as as a believer in Christ, as a follower of Christ, as a person who is now a new creation, you are to run toward the will of God. But here's the question people have. How can I discover? How do I really know what the will of God is for my life? And sometimes, sometimes Christians approach this all wrong. They do what I like to call Bible roulette. You ever seen that? It's the person who takes the Bible, says, I wonder what God's will is for my life. And they, they open up, they start turning pages, and they close their eyes, and they just point to a verse. I heard about a guy that did that, and he pointed to a verse that said, and Judas went and hanged himself. And he's like, well, that's kind of weird. Let me try that again. And he turns again to another verse and points, and it says, and go and do the same thing likewise. <laughs> Other people, they like to look for signs. It's like this farmer who's out in his field one day, he's praying as he's working in his field. God, I want to know what your will is for me. And he looks up in the sky and he sees these clouds. And there were two clouds that looked like a P and a C. And he thought, okay, God's telling me to quit farming and preach Christ. That's what he did. Became an evangelist, started to let his crops grow. But he was horrible at it. He wasn't a good communicator. He really didn't know the Bible very well. And so there was just nothing was happening. And he's struggling and frustrated. He's like, I thought God was wanting me to do this. And so a friend has met with him and said, what are you doing? And he told him about his sign, you know, seeing the P and the C in the clouds. And he says, maybe God was telling you to plant corn, you know. Oftentimes, you know, signs can be hard to distinguish. So, so how can we know really what the will of God is for our life? Well, first of all, we have to start with what we know is the general. We'll call it the general will of God. It's specific. It's the things that he's laid out very clearly in his word. We just looked at one in 2 Peter 3 where God says, I don't want, my desire is that no one would perish. My desire, this is my will that everyone would be saved. But I give people a choice. So if you're here today and you're not saved, you want to know, hey, what God's will for me? That's where it starts. You give your life, your, your heart to Jesus. 
But there's other things that are laid out very clearly in the word of God like this one. First Peter, First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, it says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you would know how to possess your body in sanctification, sexually. That you would realize that you've been set apart for God. That you wouldn't pursue the mindset that the world has toward toward sexuality. But that you would understand that you've been set apart for God. And so to live in that type of way, to follow God's will, we understand that we're going to be like a salmon swimming upstream against the current of the world. Here's another one. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, And give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. That you're to give thanks. That you're to understand and see God's hand in all situations. And know that he's still on the throne. And I'm going to thank him for that. Here's another one. Micah chapter 6, verse 8 says, And he has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? In other words, what is his will but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? We saw a few weeks ago where Peter said a similar thing in 1 Peter 2, verse 15, when he says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. So in other words, we do the will of God when we keep our conduct honorable by doing good deeds, living humbly, showing love and grace and mercy to those who are around us. And here's what we need to understand. When you are seeking to walk in those things that you know are the general will of God, the things that God has already laid out in his word specifically saying, hey, this is what I want for you. When you're walking in that, it puts you in the place to then be able to receive what is God's specific will for you. In a specific situation. It's where what Jesus said in Matthew 6.33 really comes to light when he said this, seek first the kingdom of God and all of these things will be added unto you. All the things you're concerned about, all the things you're worried about, it starts with seeking first. That's first is the key word in that phrase. Seek first. If he just said seek, we could go, okay, I'll make that, you know, I'll get to that. When he says seek first, he says you make it your priority to seek first God's kingdom. In other words, God's will, God's way, God's heart. And he says, and all these things will be added unto you. It's the same thing we see that Solomon writes in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. You know this verse. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not to your what? Your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Now here's what's interesting. Literally when it says, In all your ways, acknowledge him. Literally in the Hebrew, it reads this way. In all your ways, know him. There's a little bit of a difference there. You see, if I'm just acknowledging, in all my ways acknowledging, I'm saying, I I can be saying this. God, just want to let you know, here's where I'm going. Just want you to know, here's where I'm doing. Direct me. Bless it. Here's the path I'm on, God. Here's where I, you know, that's acknowledging him. But when he says, in all your ways, know him, what I'm saying is, God, in every single situation I'm in, this is what I want to know. I want to know your heart. I want to know your way. I want to know how this lines up with how you think. 
I want to know how this lines up with your word. And then here is the promise. And he will direct your path. So how are we to be living in these last days? We're to resist sin. To arm ourselves with the same mindset of Jesus. We are to renounce the past, realizing that we're a new creation in Christ. We're to run. Instead of We used to run toward the fleshly things, but now we want to be running toward the will of God by seeking first the kingdom of God. And finally, the fourth thing that I want us to, to note here today is that God wants us to have a mindset where our heart is to reach the lost. Look at verse 4. He says, in regard to these things, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. Let me pause there for just a moment. How many of you, when you came to Christ, that you had friends who suddenly thought you were strange? I mean, like, what's going on with him? He doesn't want to do the things he used to do. Now he's going to church all he cares about Bible. How many of you experienced that? How many of you had people, friends, people, their workmates, people that, that you used to party with, and those things, that suddenly they, they started speaking evil about you behind your back? How many of you experienced that? How many of you had family members? You know, family, they can't de-family you, but how many of your, you know, family members were just like, you know, we don't know what to do with them anymore? How many of you experienced that from your people in your family? That's, that's what Peter's saying. They look at you and they, you're not running in the same way. You're not chasing the same thing. And they think it's strange. People that you used to hang out with, they, they speak evil of you. They can get strange. They, they start to, they're coming against you. The church in Peter's day was being persecuted. Because here's what happens. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you get saved, you start following Jesus, one of two things is going to happen to your friends and your family members. They either are going to get saved, and some of you experience that, because of what God's doing in your life. They're going to see the change. They're going to see the transformation. They go, I want that. And that's awesome when that happens. Or they're going to be like, we're done with him. We're done with that person. And in Peter's day with the church here, it was extreme because they started being radically persecuted. But I want you to note what Peter says next there in verse 5 to these people. And he gives a reminder about what's going to happen to those who are persecuting the church. He says, and they will give an account to him who is ready to judge both the living and the dead. Now, I want you to note here, Peter's point in saying this is not to say to the Christians, hey, rest assured, all of those who are hassling you right now, they're going to get theirs. That's not his point. He's speaking here of this judgment that is coming because he wants the church to understand what their mission is. It's why he says in verse 6, for this reason the gospel was preached. Judgment is coming. People around us are going to one day stand before God and God's going to ask them this question, what did they do with his son? And he wants us to understand that the only hope for the world today is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, verse 6 is a little tricky, and I, and I want to look at it just quickly here for a moment. And He says, For this reason the gospel was preached also to those who are dead. Now, I want you to notice he says, was preached, and when he says those who are dead, it, it really would be better translated this way, those who have died. So in other words, he's not saying that there's coming a day when, you know, people in hell are going to get a second chance and somebody's going to go and preach the gospel. Some people have misinterpreted this verse in that way. That's not what he's saying. 
What he is saying is that the gospel, you know. He's pointing, he's putting, he's tying it all together. He's saying, look, you know, you've had friends and family members that the gospel was preached to. And they received Jesus. And now they have died. But when they were here, notice what he says next, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh. People judged them in the flesh. They looked at them in the flesh. They came against them in the flesh. But now they're living according to God in the Spirit. That's the point that he's making. He's tying this all together and saying, look, we need to preach the gospel. Because you've already seen the example of transformed lives and what happens. And yeah, the world doesn't like that and they think it's strange, but we need to live our lives in such a way that we remember and we understand that judgment is coming. And the only reason why we are still here on planet Earth is because God, for some reason, has chosen to reach lost people through saved people. Have you ever thought about why the Lord doesn't just take you right to heaven the minute that you get saved? You know, do an Enoch thing. Enoch walked with God and suddenly he was gone. First guy ever raptured, you know, Enoch. You come forward at an altar call, you pray the prayer, and suddenly, boom, you're out of here. I mean, wouldn't that be crazy? Ever think about that? Because God wants you to be here to be his testimony to reach lost people. He doesn't work through angels. He will in the tribulation time. He doesn't work through animals. I mean, that'd be kind of crazy, right? Your dog starts talking to you one day. Hey, you need to receive Jesus. That could actually be effective, but God has chosen not to do that. No, he's chosen to reach lost people through saved people. He's chosen to reach lost people through found people. And so God wants all of us to understand that he has placed us here to be on mission. His mission. Of seeing people that don't know Christ come to Christ. So how are we to be living in these last days? First of all, we resist sin by arming ourselves with the same mind that Jesus had. We renounce our past. We realize that, hey, I need to be done. I need to say enough to that stuff that I used to be a part of because I'm a new creation in Christ. I'm running now toward the will of God where I used to be running toward you know things to satisfy my flesh, but I understand now that I'm only going to find satisfaction as I seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, as I seek to know him so that that's now my focus. And in the midst of that, I realize God has placed me here to reach lost people with the powerful message of the gospel. That the Bible says doesn't return void, but has the power to transform the lives of those who believe. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you, God, for this reminder. So we're living now in the last days, Lord, we understand. And we don't know if it's months or years or 20 years, but God, we know that our world is on a trajectory right now, heading down a path of getting darker and darker and more hostile toward you and your followers. And so, Lord, for those of us here that know Jesus, we want to be living for you in this time. Not given to sin, not involved in the things of our past, but seeking to follow your will, to seek first your kingdom, and that our lives would be a testimony. 
that we would be mindful and open and looking for opportunities to share whenever and with whoever that is around us the glorious hope that we have. That in this crazy world that we're living in, we know there's hope in Jesus.